1: Welcome to episode number 196 of the Malouli Asset Management Podcast. This is Tom Malouli. And Tim Malouli. In this episode, number 196, we're going to cover topics like required minimum distributions from retirement plans. We're going to talk about when you should think about selling a bond. We're going to talk a little bit about home equity lines of credit and recovering a four, an old 401k along with some other topics. Thanks for listening and let's get started.
0: So the first question asks, can I defer a required minimum distribution to next year? The summary goes on to say, I would like to take out half of my RMD by December 31st of this year. I would like to withdraw the other half in 2018 by April 1st. I turned 70 and a half in June of this year. Is this an okay strategy? The goal of this is to keep my annual income down a little in 2017. I realized that my income will go up more in 2018. OK. The
1: answer to this question, is this an OK strategy, is yes, it's an OK strategy. When I first heard the original question, can I defer an, a required minimum distribution into next year, on the surface, the answer is no.
0: Right. Yeah. In this person's specific situation, the answer is yes. But in pretty much any other case, the answer would be no.
1: Right. What Tim's referring to is this person who wrote in with the question turned 70 and a half this year. So the rule for required minimum distribution say you must begin your first required annual minimum distribution by April 1st, Of the year after you turn 70 and a half. That's the latest, but
0: there's a wrinkle, Tim, right? That's right. Yeah, you have to, you can wait that long to take your first required minimum distribution, but just know you also have to take that year's minimum distribution as well. So if you wait to take your entire first year's distribution, That next year, you're going to essentially be taking two RMDs in one year.
1: Right. So you you do have the ability to defer in the first year, but it's every year after that. That's actually a pretty good question.
0: Right. Yeah. So in this case, the person would be taking, if they wanted to split their first one up half and half, it'd be like the first year they're taking half, and then next year they're going to have to take one and a half to make up for the rest of that RMD. Okay, so moving on, the second question asks, when should you sell a bond? The summary says, I'm learning about bonds. Why would someone sell their bond if they're holding a zero-coupon bond and it generates 6% return on maturity? I'm, ho- I'm currently holding those. I was reading that people sell their bonds when interest rates go down because they can get more than what they paid. When is the most opportune time to sell a bond?
1: Well, Tim, I'll throw the question back to you. When is the most opportune time to sell a bond, in our opinion?
0: Uh, when it matures. Right. That's the whole original premise of owning bonds. You buy them, you hold them to maturity, and then you collect your money. Uh, somewhere along the road, people decided that they wanted to trade bonds uh, and sell buy and sell them before they mature, kind of through through people for a curveball but you know the original idea was to hold it till maturity
1: right so the idea when we recommend bond allocations to clients is that they're going to sit with these for the duration right that they're going to have this income stream coming into their account and uh, hopefully it will be a stable source of value for them and uh, will turn out to be a good investment in this, Particular case, um, they own a zero coupon bond, and it generates a six percent return at maturity. So, zero coupon bonds are very different than a traditional bond. Traditional bond pays interest uh, twice a year, and uh, it you know you buy it near or close or at face value, and then you get the face value of the bond back at maturity. Zero-coupon bond, totally different. Zero-coupon bond, you like the name implies, zero coupons. You don't get any coupons. So you buy a heavily discounted investment that's going to come due at 100 cents on the dollar at some future time. That's how a zero-coupon bond works. Now, because it doesn't receive coupon interest every six months, and it's deeply discounted in price, what happens is when interest rates change, either, either up or down, you're going to find the value of the zero-coupon bond itself fluctuating wildly like an internet stock, right. the way some of these things can move. And so when interest rates are moving up, you're going to get an exaggerated move down in the value of your bond and vice versa. When interest rates are going down, the value of a zero coupon bond is going to move traditionally much more than what you would normally see in a bond. But we have to take a giant step back and remind people that the prices that you see on your account statement or online or in the paper or some other place These are for listed blocks of a million dollars, institutional size bond bids. They are not the bid that you're going to get if you try and sell your $10,000 bond. You're just not going to get that price.
0: Right. These bonds, they trade by appointment. So you're going to have to call up your broker and ask what the price is for the bond at that exact time.
1: Right. And if they give you a price, they're usually going to tell you this price is good for an hour. Right. Uh, So when you get your statement in the mail and rip open your statement and see the value of your bond has gone up or down, realize that that's what happened on the last day of the month when that statement was printed. You may be looking at this two or three weeks later. Right. So not accurate. But- Interesting question in the sense that a zero-coupon bond is going to move. It's a completely different vehicle compared to a traditional bond that has a coupon that, that pays on a regular basis. So people do sell their bonds when interest rates go up and down. If you want to speculate on the moves in interest rates, you could buy zero-coupon bonds. You could actually buy an, an exchange-traded fund that holds these things right. and does, does the same. So interesting question.
0: So the next question goes on to ask, what is the impact of the tax-deductible nature of a home equity line of credit? Okay. So um, I think we need a little more information. Right. The question also asked, how would I decide between a higher but tax-deductible interest rate of a home equity line of credit versus a lower non-deductible rate of a different loan? What is the tax deduction worth in terms of interest rate?
1: Okay. We have to do a little bit of math. <clears throat> so I'm going to use, instead of talking about the loans, I'm going to talk about bonds and show you how to calculate the taxable equivalent yield on a bond. And then you can do the, do the same in the opposite direction for a loan. So suppose you're trying to decide between a taxable corporate bond and a tax-free municipal bond. And let's just say you're in the 28% tax bracket. We're not gonna include state or local taxes for this example. Let's just say you're in the 28% tax bracket. That means you keep 72 cents on the dollar or 72% of the yield is what you actually keep in your pocket after you pay taxes. So if you have a, a taxable corporate bond that has a yield of 5% after taxes. If you're in the 28% tax bracket, you keep 72% of that. So what we do is we take 5% times 0.72. And your effective after-tax yield is 3.6%. Now, if you're with me so far, the next step is if you can find a tax-free investment that's paying 3.6 or better, go with the tax-free investment. Right. Assuming all other things are the same, credit quality is the same, the length, the time to maturity is the same, assuming that all these other things are this, are equal and you're just trying to judge between the two of them, then that's how you do it. The reason why it's hard to answer this particular question is because we don't know this person's tax rate. So they have to figure out what their tax rate is and then do the math and figure out which is going to be more beneficial to them. Home equity lines of credit have a little bit of extra value as the uh, writer mentioned in that you can still write off interest paid on a home equity uh, line or loan. Right. So that's, it's worth considering. Good question. Yeah.
0: So the next question asks, what can I do with a recovered 401k from a previous employer? Okay. They, add, they go on to say, I received a letter in the mail that informed me of an old 401k account from a place I worked during college. The letter said that the 401k was automatically rolled over into an IRA. I had tried previously to roll this account over to my new employer's 401k, but was told the balance was not vested, and I lost it when I left the company. While I am happy the account was not lost, I am unfortunately maxed out at the $5,500 contribution limit to my Roth IRA for the year. What are my options for this money? Is there a way I can move this money around without being taxed or pay a penalty? Is it possible to have a transfer applied to, the, to next year's tax year? I enrolled in my Roth IRA in October of this year and do not have a employer-sponsored plan that I'm eligible to transfer the funds to? Okay.
1: There's a lot of questions packed into this. Um, So let's go through this pretty slowly. So the letter said that he received from a former employer was that his 401k account was automatically rolled over into an IRA. Sounds... Unusual, doesn't it, that an employer can take money and, without your consent, roll it into an IRA? Right.
0: They, that kind of puzzled me at first as well.
1: Yeah. They can actually do this. So what they uh, – since 2006, now what uh, plan administrators are entitled to do is if you have former employer, employees on the payroll – who have balances in a retirement account at work, they can, if the plan permits, they can take low balances. That's anything considered $5,000 or less, and they can do one of two things. They can um, basically withhold 40% for income taxes and send you a check. Then you just kind of have to sort it out with your taxes the next year. They'll So they'll send you a check for the net difference or They can take it out of the plan, roll it into an IRA on your behalf. You can then move that IRA anywhere you want, but it gets it out of their plan. That's a cost for 401k plan administrators to keep all of these former employees on the books each year. There's a lot of administrative work. So everyone's trying to cut costs and be uh, on top of things and, and minimize expenses. And that's one way that they're able to do this. So when he left the company, now we're going back in time, he wanted to roll this account over to his new employer's 401k, but was told the balance was not vested. That's possible because uh, you're always 100% vested in the money that you put into the plan, but the employer match may not vest for six months or a year, sometimes longer, but the employer match portion he may not have been vested in especially if he went to do this right away so he actually got some good guidance in the sense that hey you're not totally vested in this you may want to wait the problem is he lost track of the paperwork right so uh, so now this money's out of the plan and it's rolled over into an IRA so then he goes on to say while I'm happy that the account was not lost I am unfortunately maxed out at the 5,500 contribution limit to my Roth for the year.
0: And this is where we think that the the person is just confused as to what they can do with that account. Um, While the contribution limit is 5,500 for a Roth IRA, rolling over money into the account does not count as a contribution. So you can roll over a balance of Anything greater than fifty-five hundred, a uh, million dollars. Right. It it doesn't matter what the what the amount is. If it's a rollover, it can be any amount. It can be more than the fifty-five hundred. So he doesn't really need to worry about that in this case.
1: Right. The only thing that would come into play is that this four hundred one k money uh, was rolled over to an IRA, so it's all pre-tax. pre-tax. And now he's talking about putting money into a Roth IRA. So he would have to do a Roth conversion, pay taxes on the money that's coming out of the traditional IRA and roll it into the Roth. So is there a way that I can move this money around without being taxed or pay a penalty? Actually, you can leave it. You leave it in the traditional IRA.
0: Yeah, I don't see a problem. We don't have any other information about this person, but just on the surface, I don't see a problem just leaving it in the traditional IRA.
1: Right. So And he works now where he doesn't have an employer-sponsored plan that I'm eligible to transfer the funds to. So he's he's limited in the sense that he can't move this money into uh, a 401K with a new employer. Um, There's a couple of things that we remind our clients in these kind of situations. If you have money that came out of an old 401K and you intend to roll this money into your new company 401k plan, then you need to set up either do a direct transfer to the new 401k plan, which isn't an option here. Or you need to set up what's called a rollover IRA with a brokerage uh, firm or bank and set up a rollover IRA. Now, there's a couple of different terms for IRAs. There's traditional IRA there's rollover IRA, and then there's Roth IRA. So a traditional IRA, you can put away $5,500 a year, $6,500 if you're over age 50. Rollover IRA, the whole idea behind this is this is a temporary parking place where you're taking money from a retirement plan at work like a 401k, and you're parking it there, and you're going to be moving the money in the future into another plan somewhere else. You should not put new contributions into a rollover IRA account. Once you do that, you cannot roll that money over right. into, a, into another plan. So probably not the answers that this person wanted, but it gave us the opportunity to, to remind our listeners of a couple of different things. Um, so, Tim, I think we have one more question
0: Yeah, the last question for uh, today's episode asks, is an inherited mutual fund taxable? The summary says, my father recently died. I received about $30,000 as the sole beneficiary of his mutual fund. Is this taxable income? I thought that inherited monies were tax exempt, but I have heard differing responses.
1: Okay, there's always a lot of confusion when it comes to uh, receiving inherited shares, And uh, mutual fund shares and stock shares, you need to know what's going on with this. Whether you're inheriting stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, it's important to know that your cost basis becomes whatever the value was on the date of the passing of the person that you're inheriting from. So if your father passed away, six months ago, then the date of death valuation will be your new cost basis. So when you receive these shares, whether, again, whether it's a stock, mutual fund, ETF, bond, it's going to be, unless there's a really unusual situation, uh, it's going to have a a cost basis that's very close to today's value. Right. So you won't have a lot of tax exposure when it comes to this. Mutual funds, there is a little bit of a twist. And I'll just allow me a, a quick story, which I may have mentioned on a previous podcast. But we had a, a situation where a client, um, husband passed away, wife came to me and said, um, My husband put $10,000 into a mutual fund in 1969. Uh, it's now grown to $109,000. Uh, it looks like I've got a $99,000 tax gain on this. So um, in this particular case, we sold it right before the husband died because they needed the money, didn't really want to do that. Uh, it would have been better to inherit this with a stepped-up cost basis. Right. Um, what the investor, new investor, was overlooking was that every year for 40 years, uh This mutual fund paid capital gains, and the capital gains uh, is reported every year, and you pay tax on it each year. So that capital gain actually gets factored in. It gets added in to your cost basis. And after doing the digging and going back through 40 years of capital gain distributions on this particular fund, we found out that her cost basis was about $92,000. So she had a $17,000 taxable gain, not $99,000. Right.
0: Significantly less.
1: Right. So she owed uh, taxes on this. Again, this was sold before the person passed away. So they owed taxes on $17,000, not on $99,000. Right. Always important to ask and to find this stuff out. Uh, it's We kind of have a little bit of regret When uh, clients come to us and they tell us what they did
0: instead of asking us what to do. Right. A lot of questions we get are, did we do the right thing or not? Uh, Help us make a decision so that we can do the right thing.
1: There's that big sigh that we have in every every episode, it seems. So good questions in episode 196. We appreciate you listening, and we look forward to talking with you again in episode 197. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you, and it might take you 30 seconds or less, and it would mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know and let the team know as well. And you can do this very easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you can do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go over to iTunes, search for Maluli Asset, and click Subscribe. Again, it'll only take a few seconds to subscribe. And if you subscribe now, it'll really help me out a lot. Thanks again.